Guess who's been back? What's good, family? It's your boy, Elgin Bailey, host of the Pace Turns Podcast. Each season, we pick a book. We walk through the book line by line, page by page, unpacking different um, pieces of it and just having dope discussions around the text that we're reading. But specifically, on top of um, the book that I do for the season, I also decided that once a month I wanted to drop a special bonus um, episode. Now, this bonus episode goes directly to my Patreon folks first. Uh, Patreon folks have been wonderful and contributing and supporting what I'm building here over at Page Turners. So they get first dibs of this. So they get the first dibs, they get the behind the scenes, they get the bloopers, they get the special interviews, they get all of those things. So please, if you would be so kind, head on over to Patreon and become one of mine. Um, you can find me over on Patreon at Page Turners BTM. Page Turners BTM. I would really, really, really enjoy and love your support. So, for the particular bonus season, right, we decided to do Mareme Kaba's We Do This Till We Free Us, right? What if social transformation and liberation are not about waiting for someone else to come along and save us? What if ordinary people have the power to collectively free ourselves? In this timely collection of essays and interviews, Mareme Kaba reflects on the deep work of abolition and transformative political struggle. This is essay number four from We Do This Till We Free. The title of this particular essay, A Jailbreak of Imagination, Seeing Prisons for What They Are, and Demanding Transformation. This was written May 2018. Our current historical moment demands a radical reimagining of how we address various harms. The levers of power are currently in the hands of an administration that is openly hostile to the most marginalized in our society. Black people, native people, the poor people, the LGBTQ people, immigrant communities, and more. While we protect ourselves from this consistent and regular blows, we must also fight for a vision of the world we want to inhabit. For us, that's a world where people like Tiffany Rusher, who began a five-year sentence at Logan Correctional Center in Broadwell Township, Illinois, in 2013, are not tortured to death in the name of safety. Our vision insists on the abolition of the prison industrial complex as a critical pillar of the creation of a new society. Imprisoned on charges related to sex work, Tiffany Rusher was eventually placed in solitary confinement for getting into physical struggle with one of her cellmates. During her time in solitary confinement, 
Rusher's mental health began to deteriorate, initiating a cycle of self-harm. After a series of suicide attempts and periods of solitary confinement, Rusher was placed on crisis watch for a period of eight months. According to Rusher's lawyer, Alan Mills, being on crisis watch meant being stripped of all clothing and belongings and placed in a bare cell with only a suicide smock, which is a single piece of thick woven nylon, too stiff to fold, with holes for our heads and arms. During this time, Rusher was monitored through a plexiglass wall with lights on 24 hours a day. Rather than receiving mental health, Rusher was kept naked except for her rigid smock in an empty cell. She was given strict dehumanizing instructions about how to wipe herself and manage her menstrual hygiene, which included a requirement that her hands be visible to guards watching her at all times. In order to read, Rusher had to persuade a prison guard to hold an open book against the glass of her cell and then turn each page as she finished reading it. Man. And I read, As time wore on, Rusher asked her attorney, Who in her situation wouldn't want to kill themselves? At the end of her sentence, Rusher was finally transferred to a mental health facility. Rusher, who disclosed to her doctors that she had experienced childhood sexual abuse, had received dozens of diagnoses over the years, including schizoaffective disorder, but nonetheless made great strides while in treatment. Eight months into her inpatient care, however, Rusher got into an altercation with another patient. Rather than treating the episode as a symptom of her mental health problems, she was sent back to jail, where the cycle of carceral violence continued. After Rusher's death, her mother, Kelly Andrews, said in a statement, Tiffany was a beautiful soul with hopes for her future. She was looking forward to coming home to be with her family. We miss her every day. Sagamon County Jail returned Rusher to solitary confinement, where she remained for three months therefore, before being found unresponsive with a ripped piece of towel around her neck. Rusher died 12 days later when the hospital removed her from life support. In the words of Mills, first they tortured her, then they killed her. Sadly, what Rusher endured was not exceptional. The U.S. prison system is designed to crush people like Tiffany Rusher every day, with only a little section of society laboring to help prisoners save themselves from being ground under. In Rusher's case, the attorneys and staff of Upton's People's Law Center in Chicago were her defenders. But in the end, the wounds inflicted by the system were too deep, and the cycle of carceral violence was simply too entrenched to interrupt. Rusher now a statistic to the world at large, and a court filing to those her attorneys were hold accountable for her death was refused any recognition of her humanity while incarcerated. But Rusher was not a number. She was a human being, 
and restoring our awareness of the humanity of prisoners is a crucial step toward undoing the harms of mass incarceration. As prison abolitionists, grassroots organizers, and practitioners of transformative justice, our vision for 2018 is one of clear-eyed awareness and discussion of the horrors of the prison system and the action that demands awareness. As a society, we have long turned away from any social concern that overwhelms us, whether it's war, climate change, or the prison industrial complex. Americans have been conditioned to simply look away from profound harms. Years of this practice have now left us with endless wars, dying oceans, and millions of people in bondage and oppressively policed. It is time for a thorough, unflinching examination of what our society has wrought and what we have become. It is time to envision and create alternatives to the hellish conditions our society has brought into being. Outspoken opponents of abolishing the prison industrial complex typically portray abolitionists as politically inactive academics who spout impossible ideas. None of this can be further from the truth. Abolitionists come from all backgrounds, and most are politically active. From bail reform to strategic electoral interventions and mutual aid, prison abolitionists are steadily at work in our communities, employing tactics of harm reduction, lobbying for and against legislation, defending the rights of prisoners in solidarity with those organizing for themselves on the inside and working to forward a vision of social transformation as a political framework. Abolition has gained significant ground in recent years, with groups like the National Lawyers Guild adopting the philosophy in their work. A growing number of grassroots abolitionist organizers have co-organized nationally recognized campaigns such as Buy Anita effort in Chicago, which helped to successfully remove former state attorney Anita Alvarez from office. Abolitionist organizers who helped lead efforts to win reparations for survivors of torture that occurred under now infamous police commander John Burge in Chicago, a city that has over the past two decades become a hub of abolitionist organizing. Abolition is a practical organizing strategy. Like any enterprise that was born of a manufactured demand, prisons perpetuate themselves, and that requires the maintenance of conditions that foster crime. From 1978 to 2014, the U.S. prison population rose 408%, largely filling its cages with those denied access to education, employment, and human services. About 70% of prisoners in California are former foster care youth. And given that the system is actually geared towards recidivism, there can be no argument that the prison system supports either public safety or the public good. Our failure to build a culture of care that nurtures human growth and potential rather than incubating desperation ensures that more criminals will be created and subsequently punished to the great benefit of those who profit from industries associated with incarceration. 
prison is simply a bad and effective, ineffective way to address violence and crime. Yet when we speak about the abolition of the prison industrial complex, many react as though the idea is alien and unthinkable. As if, to them, prisons, policing, and surveillance are part of a natural order that simply cannot be undone. In truth, the prison system did not see its massive population surge until the 1980s. When D when deindustrialization created the need for dungeon economies to replace lost jobs and a backlash against the civil rights movement and other social gains by black people propelled heightened efforts at social control. As a society, we have taught, been taught to embrace social control, which is often enforced by people with guns because we have been taught to fear each other and to acquiesce to authority. We live in a culture that celebrates criminalization, cops, and prisons. Abusive, torturous cops become sympathetic television characters whose harms the public can understand or even sympathize with. But when a civilian has committed an egregious harm, the national solace we are taught to seek is to see them suffer. They must be thrown in a cage. And once they are, justice is considered to be done. We can all move on with our lives without ever asking, like, why did this happen? Why does it keep happening? And is there something we can change that would make this tragedy unthinkable in the first place? Even those who acknowledge that mass incarceration in the U.S. is nightmarish and unjust, often feel compelled to applaud when the system ensnares someone whose harms disgust us. When Martin Shirecki, a former hedge fund manager, was sentenced to serve seven years for securities fraud, memes and laughter abound. Shirecki, who famously engaged in pharmaceutical price gouging, raising the price of the drug Darifrim from $13 to $750 per pill, was once characterized as the most hated man in America, making him an ideal poster child for the carceral state. But like most ideas, that allowed us to avert our eyes and ignore the larger system. This notion is full of holes. For one, Shirekli was not punished for forcing AIDS patients to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for life-saving drugs because rich people simply are not punished for practicing capitalism in America. As long as their money-changing skills are according to the rules of the free market, they see no penalty. Shirekli was punished for securities fraud. In short, he played Monopoly with the filthy rich and broke the rules. Yet because he also harmed everyday people, this moment is held up as one where the system worked because someone we feel contempt for was punished. The system will occasionally offer such kernels, but they don't add up to justice. No reform is being forced upon the pharmaceutical industry in the wake of Shirekli's harms, and executives who are driving prices on insulin and other life-saving medications are not faced with jail time. Our society's practice of justice is not concerned with creating just conditions. And our system of punishment does not penalize the powerful for crushing those with less power. The rich getting richer 
while others are ground under as part of the just order of our society. There are no solutions offered by the system, only the occasional display of suffering or civil death to satisfy the masses. Given these conditions, we must understand that by applauding carceral violence, we are also applauding an established and grotesque failure on the part of Western civilization. Stories like Tiffany Rusher's are buried under the headlines about people like Shirekli and serial killer, serial rapist, Larry Nazar. Stories that reassure the public that retribution is necessary and that sate a popular desire for vengeance in the face of tragedy and harm. American crime stories are not stories of good versus evil because the system is not and has never been good or heroic and criminal harms are usually much more complex than we would care to acknowledge. The crimes for which Tiffany Rusher was convicted involved sex with a minor, but why was Rusher in sexual proximity to the minor in the first place? Prison is simply a bad and ineffective way to address violence and crime. Cases like Rusher's call on us both to acknowledge the harms our system has inflicted and to create the kind of social economic conditions in which a young woman would never be presented with the choices that Russia faced. According to Russia, she was doing survival sex work when she was solicited to provide sexual services at a party. As it turned out, the young man, a relative, wanted to purchase sexual favors for his underage. Russia was 21 years old. When the young man's mother learned about the party, she was incensed and filed a police report. And just like that, Russia became a sex offender in the eyes of the law. However, different her experiences may have been those who typically characterize as predators, Russia was ensnared by a damning and unyielding brand of criminalization. When confronted with statistics about how unevenly criminal penalties are applied in the United States or with historical evidence that policing and incarceration have always been grounded in anti-blackness, native erasure and protection of property, most leftists were decry the system and agree that change is long overdue. But such admissions are usually followed by an insistence as we cannot simply uproot the system because we don't have polished, universalized, fully formed solutions to address the dangers some individuals, often characterized as predators, may pose to our communities. But the idea of predators and dangerous people is complicated by the conditions our society enforces, social and economic conditions that we know generate crime and despair. Communities whose needs are met are not rife with crimes and desperation, whereas struggling communities are. And people from communities that are highly criminalized by our racist system are far more likely to be thrust into the carceral system. Politicians routinely fiend ignorance with regard to those dynamics presenting tough-on-crime agendas that would enhance prison sentences and widen the school-to-prison pipeline as a solution to the societies, the harm society generates. Because if politicians acknowledge that most criminalized harms are rooted in social economic inequalities, they would be exposed to address those inequalities, which most refuse to do. 
In the United States, the political careers of elected officials are largely funded by those who directly benefit from the inequalities of our society. And those founders would likely abandon their pet officials if they pursued anything resembling economic justice. The carceral system has always used sensationalized cases and the specter of unthinkable harm to create new mechanisms of disposability. Those mechanisms are what feed bodies to hungry dungeon economies while we are distracted by our own fears of bad people, what they might do if they aren't contained. Of course, a system that never addresses the why behind the harm never actually contains the harm itself. Cages confine people, not the conditions that facilitate those harms of the mentalities that perpetuate violence. Yet for some reason, even people who are well-versed in the dynamics of the system often believe law and order moments are possible when just for a moment an instrument of state violence can be made. In their essay on the University of Undercommons, Writers and scholars Fred Mooton and Stefano Harney underscore why abolition is important as a political framework and organizing strategy. What is, so to speak, the objective of abolition? Not so much the ab abolition, abolishment of prisons, but the abolishment of a society that could have prisons, that could have slavery, that could have the wage. Therefore, not abolishing as the elimination of anything but abolition as the founding of a new society. When we look past the sensationalism of major headlines and examine the actual dynamics of mass incarceration, it becomes increasingly impossible to justify this perspective. While some others call for reforms, such calls ignore the reality that an institution and the deprivation of their liberty cannot be made good. The logic of using policing punishment in prisons has not proven to address the systemic causes of violence. It is in this climate that we argue that abolition of the prison industrial complex is the most moral political posture available to us because the deconstruction of the American system of mass incarceration is possible. It is time. Our vision for 2018 is a state of unrestrained imagination. When dealing with oppressive systems, cynicism is the begrudging allegiance extracted from people whose minds could otherwise open new doors, make new demands, and conjure visions of what a better world could look like. Questions like, what about the really dangerous people? Are not questions a prison abolitionist must answer in order to insist the prison industrial complex must be undone? These are questions we must collectively answer even as we trouble the very notion of dangerousness. The inability to offer a neatly packaged and easily digestible solution does not preclude offering critique or analysis of the ills of our current system. We live in a society that has been locked into a false sense of inevitability. It's time to look hard at how this system came to be, who profits, how it functions, and why. And it's time to imagine what it would look like to see justice done without relying on punishment and the barbarity of the carceral system. As writer and educator Erica Miner suggests, 
Liberation under oppression is unthinkable by design. It's time for a jailbreak of the imagination in order to make the impossible possible. Man. This is essay number four from Arambe Kabas. We do this till we are free. We do this till we free us. Essay number four. A jailbreak of the imagination, seeing prisons for what they are and demanding transformation. It is your boy, Elgin Bailey, host of the Pace Turner Podcast. With your monthly bonus, we do this till we free us. Marambe Kaba. Remember to head on over to the Patreon account, man. Drop a little change in the bucket. I really appreciate it as I continue to build this thing on the, this platform. I thank you for sticking in, tuning in, hanging out. Till next time.